So Stephen was a missionary's kid, and he decided he didn't want to be a missionary. He saw what was involved, and he just decided that he would do, he'd just be a good Christian, but not a missionary. And so he decided that he would work on being an engineer, and he was very successful at that. And he also decided that he would ride his motorcycle a lot, and he was very successful at that. And he had some experiences that kind of turned him away from the things of the Lord. He had some disappointments. Um, one of the things that happened was that he went to a church and the people were kind of hypocritical there. And so that kind of soured him on things. And then he kind of thought, well, if I'm too fanatical about things, then my life isn't going to be happy. And so after a while, the kind of motorcycle kind of took over his life and the, the money kind of took over his life. And one night he was on his way home. He'd come in late at night and uh, it would kind of bug him because he would take his shoes off at the bottom of the stairs and he would sneak up the stairs in his stocking feet, you know, late at night after he'd been out carrying on. And he would always kind of glance through the crack in the door to his mother's room. And she was always on her knees praying for him. And that really irritated him. And one night he had won, he actually had three silver cups in the back of his motorcycle one night he grew up in england and he was on his way home and he didn't expect to it but his, didn't expect it but the front tire of his motorcycle hit a patch of ice and he and he went down and had a serious injury to his head and he laid there in the night and nobody came for hours and hours and finally when they found him um, he was uh, really hanging clinging to life and the doctor did all that they could for Stephen. And after a couple of weeks, the doctor said, you're going to need to go home and uh, make your arrangements because you don't have long to live. And it was before the antibiotics and so forth. And he lay in his bed and he thought about his life and he was angry with God. And he decided, you know, if you're going to, if this, God, if this is the way you're going to treat me, then why would I want to serve you? And he just wrestled with those thoughts. Stephen did in his bed and he went through a great crisis in his soul finally one night his mother walked in the room and she handed him a letter and the letter was from his father who was in Africa doing some he's doing some training doing some doing some seeking out a, a village that they were going to go to next and back then at that time it took three weeks for a letter to get to Africa it took three weeks for a letter to get home his dad didn't know that he'd been injured. His dad didn't know that he was lying at the point of death. But his mom just dropped this envelope on his bed, and then she quietly turned and left the room. And it was an envelope. It was a letter from his dad. And Stephen took the letter, and he opened it up, and it was just a very simple few lines where his dad said, I've been praying for you, and what I have to say is very urgent. And then it said this, only one life will soon be passed only what's done for christ will last only one life will soon be passed only what's done for christ will last and so stephen his name stephen olford lying there in the bed said to god god if you help me get better i will walk with you i'll live for you i'll serve you and he said and if you don't help me get better i want you to take me to yourself well you probably know stephen olford got better as a matter of fact, I have a friend who's a, he's a teacher at Moody Bible Institute. His name's Dr. Thrasher, Bill Thrasher. 
And Bill Thrasher said, Stephen Olford was a well-known pastor, went all around the world, all around the country preaching. And my friend, Dr. Bill Thrasher, when he was a single man, he was living in Wheaton, and he was commuting into Moody, and he said one morning, he was standing there, getting ready to get on the train, and there was Stephen Olford up in years, was a distinguished-looking man with, with beautiful white hair, kind of like Larry Carlson. Oh, I don't think he can play the piano. And um, he looked over and said, oh, my goodness. He said, Stephen Olford, and God allowed uh, Bill Thrasher and Stephen Olford to have this ongoing fellowship and friendship. Dr. Thrasher said he was one of the most godly men he had ever met. Now, here's why I told you that story. I told you that story because in our lives, God will often use things that are bad to do something really good. And especially when we're tempted to stray, sometimes difficulties, hardships, reversals come into our life, and they seem bad, but they're God's way of doing something good. This is true with individuals. This is true with churches. This is true with nations. If you take your Bible today, I want to show you a passage of Scripture. Go to the book of Matthew, and then turn backward 11 books into the Old Testament. How, is that, how would that be? Go to Matthew, go back into the Old Testament, 11 books, but you can find that what we call the minor prophet Joel, the prophet Joel. And it's, a, it's the 11th book back from Matthew into the Old Testament from Matthew. God knew that his people would have times when there would be spiritual decline. God knew that his people would have times when there would be apostasy in the land, when people would walk away from God, when people would turn away from God. God knew there would be many times of, of spiritual decline. He knew that we would face times of spiritual decline, even though our nation has a very rich, if not checkered, but very rich spiritual heritage. And God has done so much for us. And our, our nation was literally birthed in prayer meetings. Even though that's true, he also knew there would be times when people that lived in America, like we do, would look at our nation and think, something isn't right here. And for times like that, we have the prophecy of Joel. And Joel is going to tell us the main idea in Joel, the key idea is restoration. In Joel, and they're in chapter 2 and verse 25, Joel is going to tell a story about a locust infestation in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Joel is going to warn about a military invasion. And in chapter 3, Joel is going to warn about an invasion of God in the day of the Lord. An ultimate and cosmic interruption of everything when God shows up to mete out justice and those who are faithful to him are vindicated and those who are not faithful to him are judged. And so you have this kind of ramping up. You have Joel is going to say this locust infestation that you're facing, God is in it. This motorcycle accident that you had, God is in it, right? And if you don't repent, there's going, to be, there's going to be something worse that happens. And ultimately, those who don't repent, something ultimately bad is going to happen. But there is backing up. There is a promise of restoration here. And the key thing, to back up to the, last, the first slide, the key idea in the book of Joel, that even though it is a, it's going to have, in the Hebrew, there are four poetic sections. In our Bible, there are three chapters. But the, the big idea that's going to emerge is that when judgment comes, because of our sin, God is eager to restore. And the idea that I want you to get in this series as we begin the new year 
is that when God restores something, it's actually better than you ever imagined. It's actually better than new. And that's why we call in our series, Restored Better Than New. There is a longing in each of our hearts for something that none of us have ever experienced. Because it's our destiny as believers one day to be in an earth that is like unspoiled and unsoiled by sin. And so God wants us to have a heart that believes that he can restore things that are broken better than new. And the locust infestation comes in and it's described in chapter 1. We're going to read about it in a, in a moment. Back up and into this, this first slide. There. And we'll just leave it up there until I tell you to move it. Okay, so because I'm confusing our operator because I'm not doing what I said. So it's not his fault. It's me. Um, but unless maybe the Lord's helping me here. But anyway, this idea of restoration in 225 is Joel says to the people, if you repent, God will restore the years that the locust have eaten. I think you have to agree with me. That's one of the most, um, that's one of the most beautiful statements in the Bible. God can restore years that were taken away from me. Now, some of you really understand this because you've had years that you were away from the Lord and then you came to know the Lord or follow the Lord or obey the Lord and you repented and you turned back to the Lord and he multiplied the years that you have. And, there, and we'll talk about how that works. But understand this. What we're going to watch for in this book and the whole, the basic idea of this book is how can we be restored better than new? And let's go back to the beginning of the book. Let's read. I'm going to read the first chunk. I'll read you in, I won't read it all together. But the text that we're going to take today, as time allows, is going to be chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2 and verse 17. Doesn't that sound ambitious? Chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 17, because they kind of go together. But we're going to read them and explain them in four different chunks. And I think you're going to find it really helpful and before we're done today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to challenge each of you with something that's very specific and very practical for you to be restored, you know, better than new. Look at, look at the prophet Joel. He said, the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. We know very little about Joel except for two things. He's three things. He's a son of Pethuel. He received the word from the Lord. And if you read the book really carefully, you can see that his heart is tender toward God. And he's very familiar with the material in Deuteronomy, in Isaiah, and in the minor prophets, because not only is Joel quoted frequently in the New Testament a lot, but Joel quotes many Old Testament passages, especially the minor prophets in Isaiah and even Deuteronomy. And the minor prophets should be seen as a kind of bundled together or bound together with one basic message, and that is judgment should lead to repentance, or people who want to follow God should be quick to confess their sin. Or if you want to rebuild, this is the kind of first step. There are, there are two points in my message today. It's going to seem like a whole lot more to you. But there are two basic points in the message today. And they're going to tell you the things to do to begin to rebuild a life that's better than new. So here you have Joel, who is a tender-hearted prophet of God, who's familiar with the Bible that he has. And now he's heard from the Lord, and he's faithfully recorded it. And it is kind of shocking what he says. Here's what he says. Verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? In other words, have you ever seen anything like this before? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Like, basically, let this go down through at least three generations or more. And of course, we're reading it today, so the truth of it is still alive. 
What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and weigh all you drinkers with wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth, for a nation has come up against my hand, my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. So be, be ashamed, O you tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for, for the wheat and the barley because of the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. This is a description of a, a, of a judgment that's come in the form of a locust infestation, which really sounds Old Testament and apocalyptic, except on Friday night, I was on the way home from visiting my parents, and I stopped, I got some Brunswick stew at the, uh, at the barbecue place, and I sat in my car to eat it. By the way, you should do that someday. And I sat in my car to eat it, and while I was listening to National Public Radio, because I couldn't get any good radio, I was listening to National Public Radio, you know what they said? They said, in North Africa tonight, there is a locust infestation that's literally wiping out years of crops and threatening the life of the people. This locust infestation is that, that's described here in the Bible, in antiquity, in Judah. It's wiping out all of the food for the people and bringing all, all of their culture to uh, stop even, even worship. Notice this. It's an unprecedented disaster. He, he said, get, verse 2, Hear this, elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? It's unprecedented. It's like it, this locust infestation that God sent to wake the people up was a, big, was a big deal. It was something that they would pass down through the generations. Verse 3 says, and, and some Bible students think that the use of four kinds of locusts is a poetic device to say that it's a four-year locust infestation. There's at least a lot of the eating grasshoppers that are, that are destroying everything that grows and everything that they can eat and, of course, much of what they can drink. That's why it says no wine or figs would be to grow for use, good or bad. Let's talk about eating and drinking and drunkenness and verses 5 through 7. And all that is this locust infestation was so bad that nobody would, would eat or drink anything good or bad, or anything new, good or bad. And there would be no grain, and there would be no offerings for God. Verses 8 through 10 talk about mourning because they couldn't give a, a, a grain offering, and they couldn't give a drink offering. It was a devastating locust infestation. And then uh, verse 11, uh, it affected the land and produce. Verse 12, it made the people suffer. Verse 18, it made the animals suffer. Now, this makes us kind of think, when you wreck your motorcycle, you're running from God, and you wreck your motorcycle, or you're not where you should be, and you wreck your motorcycle, and you're lying in bed, what should you do? When you look around and something bad has happened, 
and it seems almost apocalyptic in scale, or when you feel like your nation's going through great turmoil or angst or division or misunderstanding or hatred or spiraling away from God, or when your own life feels out of control, what should you do? For such a time, we have a prophecy of Joel. Though we may not suffer a locust infestation, we know what it feels like to drift away from God. We know what it feels like to not be sure we're right with God. We know what it feels like to be in a nation that, is, has, has, that has had days that were better than they are now. They used to be closer to God than they are now. And our temptation here at a time like this would be maybe a couple of things. One would be personal despair. One would be personal despair. That would be a personal temptation. Like, uh, everything's against me. Everything's bad. And to be depressed or to be in despair. The, the other temptation, and I think this is true with Christians, as we look at the pagan world around us that doesn't understand us and that doesn't understand or love God, and that is to have a spirit of condemnation toward them. Look at those wicked, godless people and all the things they do. Isn't that disgusting? And maybe you sit and you watch the evening news and you see all the perversions and all the crazy things that are happening in our world and how people have said things that are good or bad and things that are bad or good. And then you say, let them go to hell. Condemnation. And you know that despair and condemnation should not be in the vocabulary of a follower of Jesus Christ. And, it should, and, and Joel gives basically gives what should we do starting in verse 13 and so in verses 13 through 18 this is what what he's going to say is not condemnation but he's going to say something we're really not very good at and we don't really do very often and your pastor isn't really as good at this as he is at other things joel is going to say not condemnation but he's going to say lamentation what do we do in the day of the locusts or when hardship or disaster strike or when things aren't going right and our appliances break down and our bills are unpaid and our kids have strayed? What do we do? And what he's going to say is we lament, we grieve, we mourn. Let's read it. Here's what it says. Put on sackcloth and lament. And he says, starting with the priests, so the spiritual leaders, oh, priest, wail, ministers of the altar, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Then they said something interesting, and this happens ten times, about ten times in the Old Testament. Our nation was founded with this very same technique, if you will. Consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it comes. You see that? You think, was that a locust infestation? Came from the locust? No, it came from um, the Almighty God. And as a, as a, in a symbolic way, it's symbolic of the day of the Lord, which we'll talk about a lot in the future. And so he says, verse 15, alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before your eyes joy and gladness from the house of, of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. 
how the beasts groan and the herds of the cattle are perplexed because there's no pleasure for them. Even the flock of sheep, they suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. He says in verse 19, there's a change that comes and we'll, we'll read that you know, in a moment. But for now, what is, Joel, what is Joel saying? What has God told, told Joel to say? He's told him this. When the people look at their life and when they see this, in their case, the locust infestation, or when we look at ourselves, we see the motorcycle accident or the setback, or, or it could be as simple as you know, an early sign of God's chastisement could just be a feeling of upset that we have in our soul. Can anybody relate to this? You know something isn't right. You know something isn't right in your soul and you're afflicted and your heart is just like something's not right. Or it could be someone rebukes you. Or it could be that you have an inexplicable difficulty in, 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 in the years of the founding of our nation not all the founding fathers were Baptist, right? You're probably aware of that. But many of them were believers. Many of them were devout believers. And although they were imperfect, many were God-fearing believers, and others weren't. But, but, but the, what they did is they would call a solemn assembly, and they would have a catalog of sins. And when, uh, this, when something happened, like in, the, in, in, in early colonial America, there was in, the, in Boston, in the, in, the, in the St. Charles River, two young men drowned. And it was unusual, you know, that there's this terrible tragedy that these two boys drown in the river. And so they called an assembly together and they asked, God, is there anything that we've done that's displeasing to you that you have allowed this terrible tragedy to take place? And they have biblical precedent for that kind of behavior. Because this is what the Bible teaches us. When difficulty comes into our life or when something happens that's just hard or difficult or, uh, or a hardship, what the first thing we should do is just examine our own hearts. And we should be willing to be grieved over our own sin and to make sure that what's happening isn't happening because God is lovingly chastising us back to himself. And so Joel calls for the leaders, the pastors or the priests and the elders and, the, and all of the people. He actually appeals to 10 different groups of people, to 10 different times to lament. In verse 13, it's the priests. There's another, in verse 14, it's the elders. In, sorry, in verse 14. Also in verse 14, all the inhabitants of the land. And you think about this. Jesus never sinned, but Jesus lamented over sin, right? You say, I want to be like Jesus. He didn't celebrate all the time. He was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows. There were times when other people were celebrating and they were rejoicing when Jesus was lamenting. He was weeping. And much of the material in the Old Testament is written in the form of lament and Jesus would often quote the lament of the Old Testament he, he, he showed us how to grieve and especially over sin think about the great men and women of the Bible think about David David sinned but he also lamented over sin Ezra confessed and he led this was probably concurrent uh, chronologically with Joel's ministry Ezra confessed sin and he led the people in confession Nehemiah if you read in Nehemiah there's beautiful tracts of scripture about Nehemiah confessing his sin and the people's sin. Nehemiah lamented. David lamented. Ezra lamented. Jesus lamented. Daniel lamented. In chapter 9, the beautiful prayer in Daniel chapter 9 is a record of Daniel's lamentation. Godly people grieve over sin. They don't just celebrate all the time. They're not just always happy and breezy. They're grave and sober when it comes to their own sin 
And when they see sin around them, they don't move to despair and they don't move to condemnation, but they look at the sin around them and they're properly grieved over it. Their hearts are broken with the things that break the heart of God. I think my dad was quoting maybe Warren Wiersbe, but he often would say to us when we were growing up, you can tell a lot about a man by what makes him laugh and what makes him cry. Isaiah lamented. He saw the Lord high and lifted up and immediately he said, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among people whose lips are unclean. We're sinful. He immediately lamented in the presence of God. Saul lamented and confessed his sin. Peter, remember Peter, egregiously sinned against God and then Jesus just looked at him. And when Jesus looked at him, then he was so grieved. And what did he do? He wept, sobbed, lamented, mourned. The prodigal son, the story Jesus made up of the prodigal son, and the prodigal son is off in the pig pen, you know, in the far country, and he comes to himself, and what does he do? He properly grieves his own sin. He laments. And the publican, and Jesus made up another story of the Pharisee and the, and the publican, and the Pharisee didn't lament, and he didn't grieve, and he didn't mourn over sin. But remember the publican, he beat on his breast, and he, and he grieved. The way to joy is lament. The way to happiness is sadness, right? The way to blessedness is grief over sin. Some of us have this instinct, and we don't know that it really comes from the Lord. First we grieve, first we lament, first we, we, we see what God may have sent, and we, we mourn or we grieve over that. So a locust infestation wasn't a final judgment, right? It wasn't an ultimate judgment. It was what, what um, students of revival call a remedial judgment. It was for the purpose of, like, here's a warning. You need to take me seriously. And some of you young people, if you, you, can, you, can, be, you can make up your mind by the grace of God that you're going to walk with the Lord right now and never turn aside, and you can do that. God will help you. But if you decide that you're going to turn away, God will be faithful to chastise you. And it may be a whisper in your heart, or maybe a terrible heartache, a tragedy, Stephen Olford isn't the first young man that went away from God and had a terrible motorcycle accident. And one time I wrote a little story about my daughter, one of my daughters that had disobeyed and she got hurt. And then I submitted this really, this story that was precious to me. I submitted it for publication and the editor told me, well, that's a good story, but we know that God doesn't work like that. And she was a pretty nice lady, but she was, she needed to go to a better church because that is how God works. That is how God works. Like a good mother, is going to say, oh, I only give my kids sugar. I never send them to their room. I never give them a time out. Well, you're not a good mother if you never give them any correction, if you never give them any warning. If, you're, if you say, I'm a great dad, but I never correct them, and I never instruct them, and I never warn them, I say, no, you're not a great dad. You're, you're, you'd be a fool. Only a fool would, would, would know that the bridge is out and not warn the people that he loves. And God isn't a fool, but he's a loving father. And so this was a remedial judgment. It's like Joel is saying, hey, the, the, it's the locust now, but, but later on it's going to be invading armies, and after that it's going to be God himself. And so if you're wise, you repent before the locust, right? And so if you're a young, young man and you, you, you speak to your mom in a way that's disrespectful and you go lay down in your bed and the Holy Spirit tells you that was disrespectful, get out of your bed and go back and talk to your mom and say to your mom, mom, I love you, I'm sorry. And if you have a pattern of that as a young man, the blessing of God is going to be on your life. 
I know young men like that. I had a retreat once. I called it the Biblical Leadership Training Retreat. There was a boy on the retreat. His name was Lauren. I've had the privilege of watching Lauren go from just a little boy to, to a grown-up. He's my peer now. He's a dad with a, beautiful, with a wife and a beautiful family, and he's a godly man. But it, we were at this retreat, and the kids thought it would be really funny if they would hide from me. I told them, you're leaders. I'm going to trust you. And so they all went together, and they all hid, and they broke their curfew. And so then I'm looking around. I couldn't find anybody because they had hid in the... And they, they went up and hid in the uh, attic of the chapel. They thought it would be funny, which it was kind of funny. And, but when I found them, I decided that I would reverse the thing and that I would say, uh, since you guys, I treated you like leaders and you didn't act like leaders, I'm going to have to take you all home in the middle of the night and you're going to have to explain this to your parents. Get in the van, get in the bus. And so all the kids come down out of there and I'm like, get in the bus. I was an idiot, but that's, you know, I think we've already established that part. And I said, get in the bus. So the kids all got on the bus and I said, I'm sorry, you know, you're here because you're leaders. And none of you are acting like leaders, and you broke the curfew, so I'm going to take you home, and it's going to be the middle of the night, and you can explain that to your parents. I had no intention of doing that, but that's what I told them. And so you should have heard them. The kids are like, that's not right. That's not the right way to treat it. I remember one girl in particular, man, she was just giving it to me. I was laughing because I had no intention of doing it, but then, then Lauren spoke up. I'll never forget this little boy's name is Lauren. And Lauren says, hey, guys, we're, we were wrong. You know, we, we promised Pastor Pierpont that we would get in bed, and we didn't do it. And, and because of that, we're going to have to go home, and so we shouldn't be giving him a hard time about it. And that's around smile. I said, I'm just kidding. You guys can go to bed now. They said, oh, you're crazy. They, all, they went and got out of it. But for years, I've thought about that, and I watched Lauren's life, and I watched how God blessed them because he had a tender heart, because he was a man under authority, because he was easy to be entreated, because he didn't answer back, you know, when, and this is the, this is the spirit that we want to have. You can, young men and young ladies, can I just tell you this? If you will cultivate a heart that's tender to God, God's blessing will chase you down in your life. And mother, you're sitting here thinking, I want a young man like that in my life. Well, show him what it looks like, Dad. Show him what it looks like. Show him what it looks like for a man to be a man, but to be humble before God. Tender-hearted, quick to seek forgiveness. Ladies, you might say, I want my daughter. I don't want my daughter to be hardened with sin and stray from God. Okay, show her what it looks like to have a tender heart about your sin. Give her an example over and over again about what it looks like to lament over your own sin and, and the sin that's around you. This is what he's saying. And when something happens in your life that you really don't understand, what should you do? When there's a disaster or a tragedy or a difficulty or a wildfire or an automobile accident or a physical reversal or a financial reversal or a marital difficulty, what should you do? Well, it's always safe to repent. This is what Jesus said. Did you know that? In Luke chapter 13, there was, a, there was, a, there was an invasion and some people died unjustly. And then they asked Jesus about this. And it's in Luke chapter 13 and verse 1, some were present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, he, they're saying to Jesus, this was horrible, wasn't it? And then Jesus, I'm sure, surprised him with his answer. He says, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Probably like, like you, he's implying, right? Because they suffered in this way? I tell you, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says, don't get hung up on some injustice over there. You make sure you are right with God. And then he says, he gives another example. He says, or those 18 whom, uh, upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell. 
I said, y'all heard in the news, the Tower of Sloan fell and 18 innocent people died, right? Just like, oh, a random thing. You know, they, they innocent. He said, do you think that those, they were worse offenders than all others in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, here is the heart disposition of a person who knows God and loves God. He or she is really quick to lament and to repent. And something happens that's difficult. The first thing, it may not be chastisement for sin, but that's the first place we want to go. God, is there anything in my life not pleasing to you? Is there any word that I've said, thought that I've had, thing that I've neglected that I should have done? Is there an attitude uh, that I have had that's not pleasing to you? That's the first thing. We, first, we lament over our sin. And, then, and, and the second thing there is he appeals then in chapter 2 to the, he's, he talks about this, uh, really this army invasion. We know that the, that the literature changes from locusts that come in like an army to an army that comes in like locusts in, ch- in the end of chapter 1 there and through uh, chapter 2. It is when, the, when, when the, the day of the locust comes, we lament. When the day of the Lord comes, when we repent. And go to the next slide here. And notice this, chapter 1 and verse 19 through chapter 2 and verse 17, most Bible students think it's, it's, it's describing a, a, an actual military invasion because it starts talking about fire and other things like that. In other words, what Joel was saying, what God inspired Joel to say was, you, you know, when the locusts come or when you have a difficulty or when you have a trial, assume that the Lord's trying to get your attention and re- lament of the sin that you committed and any sin that's around you. And, and, if that, and, and if God then lifts his judgment, there's not going to be a military invasion. But in, in Judah, it's like, but if you continue this way, after having probably just returned from captivity, then there's going to be an invasion that's going to get worse. And this is true in life. So when he whispers in our ear and we ignore him, he's going to talk louder. Anybody have any experience with this? If God tells you something and you disharden yourself and you're stubborn and you're unwilling to do what he says, he has a way of getting your attention because he loves you. And, that, and that, that's not going to necessarily going to be fun. So in verse 19, you know, it's to you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Flame has burned the trees of the field. Beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. Fire devoured pastures in the wilderness. See, it changed from locust to some. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. The day of the Lord is coming, and it's near. The day of darkness and gloom, and a day of clouds and thick darkness. Does this sound apocalyptic to you? It should, because this is where God has, this is where God has motivated Joel to hint forward. It's like, first you have this difficulty. And then it gets worse, and you have a, a, a military invasion. And after that, God himself is coming, and he's going to chastise you personally in the great day of the Lord, in the end time. You really, and you'll see, he absolutely is pointing this, because later on, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, he's going to describe things that are obviously future, like the day of Pentecost is described in Joel there and, and in chapter 2. And you can read this, and you should read this. Make this uh, we have a month here uh, to, to emphasize this. And when the, the day of the Lord is frequently referred to in the Bible and God's people look at the day of the Lord as a day when God himself shows up to vindicate their faithfulness. But Joel kind of surprises God's people by saying, are you really sure you want him to show up in judgment? Are you really ready for that? Are you sure you won't be a part of that judgment? And then he says, Israel is going to be judged in the day of the Lord. 
as well as the pagan nations. And so Jesus says, when he talks about the day of the Lord in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus says, be ready. And when Paul talks about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verses 9 through 11, he says to believers, be comforted. There's a day of vindication when Jesus comes back, right? And Peter, when he talks about the day of the Lord, he says, be holy in 1 Peter chapter 3. And Peter says there's going to be a restoration of all things one day. And he says, in the regeneration or in the time. In other words, he's pointing forward. The day of the Lord is going to bring judgment, full and final judgment, and then it's going to establish his millennial reign and his ultimate kingdom in the earth. And this Joel points toward, and it's something that we should never have far from our minds. So as a result of this, what does he say? He says, repent. He says, at the locust infestation, lament. And at the human invasion, repent. And these are the first two steps to restoring ourselves to better than new. And that is what God does when something that God doesn't like is present in our life. We should lament. And when we sin, we should repent. And who should repent? All of God's people. In this case, we, we should take time to study it a little bit later. He says, no junior church that day. I want everybody in this service. And right now we have the children out, and that's okay. I'm for it. But there are times when you say, I want all the children in. I want all the grandchildren in. I want all the old and all the young. Everybody needs to be assembled and to hear from God. This is serious stuff. It's very sober. Who should repent? Everyone. When should they repent? Chapter 2 and verse 13. Look what it says. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. I'm sorry, chapter 2 and verse 13 says, rent, uh, you know, uh, verse 12 is what I was referring to. Even now declares the Lord. Return to me with your hearts, fasting, weeping, mourning. And he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. They have, the pro- they have the practice of tearing their clothes. He says, I don't want any, you know, religious show here. I want you to actually tear your hearts. I want it to be real, genuine brokenness. So it's counterintuitive, right? God says, I want to do a thing, a new thing in you. Restore the years the locust has eaten. Make your marriage better than ever before. Make your life better than ever before. Bless you. Okay, how does that, where do we start? Well, we start with lament and repent. And that's what the the message is. And why should we repent? Because of who God is. Joel, in there in chapter 12, uh, chapter 2, and verses 13 and 14, he quotes the the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. He quotes um, the passage in Exodus 43. You see what he's saying there? In in verse 13, return to the Lord your God. He is gracious, merciful, and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. He doesn't want to judge you. His, His holy character requires that he judge you. You see that? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing. You see the play on words? You can even see it in the English Bible. You turn and he'll turn. You relent, and you repent, and you you'll lament, and relent, and repent, and return, and he will be faithful. If you read this in a sitting, which I've done over and over this week, you should do this. Read it in a sitting. This is like the springtime of this passage. It just burst on your soul. It was like, oh, all this heaviness, you know, infestation of locusts, infestation of, of conquering armies, and they're so efficient in their and they're deadly and then god says but but if you call out to me i'm gracious and i'll bring springtime back to your life this is very very hopeful i was sitting in a restaurant with a couple 
two years ago, and they said they had a period of time in their life where they went to a conference, and at the conference, the man got up and he said, you need to have a clear conscience. They were Christians, but they were just like baby Christians. And the, and the, and the man at the conference said, you need to have a clear conscience, and you need to go back to the people that you sinned against, and you need to ask God forgiveness. You need to ask them forgiveness. And he said, and if you've stolen from them, you should make it right. And this guy, his name was Bill, he took that seriously. And so he said he had stolen thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of things from the Ford Motor Company. And he said, if I go and tell them that, it's going to be a felony and they're going to put me in prison. And he talked to his wife. They were having lots of marital trouble. He didn't have money. And now, he, now he, he's just, his heart is beating fast and he's sweating because he thinks, i got to go back to the company. And he, and he did. He went back and he made it right. And God restored his business and God restored his marriage. And he, he actually didn't have to serve time. But he sat there that day and he told a story about how when he was honest about his sin and he made things right, his life was restored better than new. A few principles of confession we'll share the next time we come. So you want to be careful. Can we, but I would suggest that you begin just between you and the Lord. This week, why don't you just begin between you and the Lord? Lament and repent. I went to a pastor's meeting at Wheaton years ago. And as the men at the pastor's meeting taught, I was a very young man, and I realized that a number of the things they said, I was guilty of all of them. There were only three or four things, and I was guilty of every one of them. And the more that they used the word to probe come down into my soul, I just realized that I was guilty. And um, I was with friends from Life Action Ministries, and I'm kind of, I'm social. I love to talk with, you know, people, and, and normally I would have a lively conversation all the way home. But I remember walking out to the van that day, and I couldn't talk. And I just thought, oh, God. I never saw those things before. And now that I've seen them, I can't even speak. But I know you're right. And I had the heaviness of that conviction on my heart. All the way home, drove all the way home, back to our home without speaking. But today, every day of my life, I still enjoy the fruit of that repentance. Every day of my life. Every day of my life. Every Christmas, the fruit of that repentance comes and sits around the Christmas tree and opens gifts. And every Thanksgiving, the fruit of that repentance comes, sits around the table, and talks about the goodness of the Lord. You won't regret repenting. You will regret not repenting. You won't regret the sorrow that you have when you confess your sin. You'll regret the sorrow that you have if you don't confess your sin. Can I ask you, are you grieved over your sin? You have sin. Are you grieved over it? Do the people that know you know that you're grieved over it? Are you quick to confess your sin? Or are you hard and stubborn? Is your heart tender or is it, is it hard? When other people sin, are you grieved over their sin? Or do you feel a little bit more superior? Do you feel superior to them? When somebody else falls into sin or dives into sin, you look at it like, well, that's good. Now I look better. Or do you lament? That's what Jesus did. Jesus lamented over sin. He was broken over sin. What would have happened if Stephen Olford had hardened his heart against God when he was lying there in that bed and turned away from God? Think of the thousands upon thousands of people that God used in the touch of their life that wouldn't have been touched if he hadn't been tenderhearted. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm going to ask 
We're going to sing this song again before we go home today. I'm going to ask the team to come to lead us in this. You know, for years, God's people have used this song as a, as a, as a, a song that encourages them to confess their sin and come to God and repent. And we're going to have uh, teams up here to pray with you. And I'd like those teams to come, please, right away and just stand here. And even while the song is still being sung, in the front pews are open, and we could really turn them into a place to kneel and pray. And maybe some of you would like to do this before you go home. I hope that many of you would find a place in your truck or by your bed or in a quiet room or somewhere that you could, this week, you could be very serious about this. But maybe some of you would like to begin publicly right now to come forward during this song, to kneel and just to begin publicly, openly saying, God, I'm sorry about the sin around me. I'm sorry about my own sin. Would you stand up? And then I want to welcome you to come while we sing, if you wish. If you'd like to have somebody talk with you, those that are going to pray are going to be standing here. If you'd come now, would you all stand? Stand, please. And those who are going to pray, if you'd come and stand here. If you come and you walk up to those that are standing here, they'll pray with you right now. If you'd rather, you know, kneel here and pray, you may. If you pray where you stand, but in the Old Testament, they would call God's people to a solemn assembly. And the New Testament doesn't instruct us to do that, but in the New Testament, it instructs us to use every communion service as a solemn assembly. And wouldn't it be wonderful if this year at Bethel, every time we came to communion, all the thoughtful Christians would go, okay, God, we've assembled in a solemn assembly and we're honest about our sin. What if every dad this year had a level of confession much deeper than he ever had before? Every mom did that. What if the old people in the church were tenderhearted and the young people? What if the sons and the daughters, the boys and the girls? What a wonderful thing would it be? What if the elders would just be very brokenhearted about their own sin and about the sin that's in the church? And what if we prayed and confessed our sin and we lamented and we mourned like we should? What would God do? And maybe you're here and you got to get this thing started because you're not a Christian. And you know it. You You need to believe. You need to trust the Lord. You need to be saved. You need to be baptized. And then if that's true about you, I want you to come. Shake the hands of one of these that's here. Let them know why you've come. We'll, we'll sit down with you. We'll explain exactly what to do. We'll lead you in prayer to receive Christ. And we'll, we'll, we'll arrange your baptism. And you can begin to follow the Lord. That's the way I'd want to begin the year. So as we sing this, you do as the Lord uh, says to you to do. Just as I am, I would be lost, but mercy and grace my freedom bought, and now to I'm welcomed with open 
Listen, here's what I've been praying about and thinking about this week, that this week that you would go and that this would come back to your mind over and over again. You know, how sweet would that be, right? I mean, none of us went through last week without sinning. None of us went through last week without a, an unkind word or, or an impure thought or, or a dishonest motive. None of us did. But many of us went through last week without laments and without repentance. God has promised that he will bless those who lament and repent. And throughout this week, would you think of a place? I know you were like shy about coming forward. I get that. Think of a place in your life. Take a walk. Go to the barn loft. Get in the cab of your truck. Take a drive in your car. Think of a quiet place where you can meet with God and just say to God, God, I acknowledge that there's sin all around me and there's sin within me. And I'm sorry and I'm grieved. And I want your blessing on my life. I want your favor on my family. I want your blessing on this church. Our nation is a mess. Don't believe it's not. Straying from God right now. And God's people need to understand that. And they need to be praying about that. Father in heaven, I thank you that you've given us your word that when we study it, it brings uh, us to conviction. And, and Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us to be a people with a tender heart toward you and a tender heart towards sin. And I pray our children would see us and see, see that in us. I pray that the old people in the church would be encouraged by seeing the young people tenderhearted to God and the young people be encouraged to see the older people who, are, who admit that their, their sin and who grieve and mourn over their, their own sin. I pray that the lost people, the pagans in the world, would look at the church not just as a bunch of self-righteous, condemning people, but people that are broken over their own sin Help us in this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.